0: Welcome to the first 2019 episode of the Lions 24-7 podcast. Hope everyone had a happy holiday season and a healthy start to the new year. I'm Tyler Donahue, typically, as you know, joined by my colleague Sean Fitz. Sean, not with us this episode. He's been working his way back uh, from a bit of those head cold situations that you pick up over the holiday season when you have two kids. and, And that's what happens. And Sean now can't speak for a long period of time, but I know he's going to get back here. Their beard will be better than ever. And he'll be in with his insight just in time for a huge stretch of the recruiting. So we look forward to having Sean back, but we march forward with a couple of great guests on the show. Weird to call Mark Brennan, a guest because of course he is in this thing with us at lines 24, seven with fight on state. Uh, everyone knows Mark, longtime member of the Penn state football beat. And certainly someone I'm excited to work with every day, Um, On our website, he'll be on the podcast here coming up in just a few moments. We're going to talk about the Citrus Bowl. Mark and I were both down there in Orlando and, and what we saw, what we didn't see. Our takeaways from that game moving into the offseason. Obviously, there are some questions out there after a fourth loss. Um, show a little bit of love uh, in the direction of Trace McSorley in terms of his career coming to an end, what we saw in that final fourth quarter um, of his time in a Penn State uniform and what we heard after from him during his media session. Uh, and, and then we're going to you know, look a little bit to the past and to the future on the roster because five early NFL draft entries – impact this team moving ahead some more expected than others starters off the board on both sides of the ball and then at the same time showing how cyclical college football is 11 early enrollees on campus this month earlier this week uh, 11 new scholarship athletes in town and that obviously major impact as the team prepares to get into its winter program and eventually spring ball and then the boys will be back on the football field and we'll have all that to talk about but this is off-season chatter. Uh, at this point, and a lot of that centers on recruiting. So, of course, we're going to bring in Brian Doan, national recruiting analyst at 24-7 Sports, one of the best in the industry. Can't wait to hear his perspective on what Penn State's still looking at as this cycle moves forward, you know, they've got 18 guys in the class right now for 2019. The cycle ends February 6th, National, National Signing Day, the traditional first Wednesday of February. That used to be a much bigger deal before the early signing period. Still a pretty big deal, though, for Penn State. They're going to look for some more pieces. We'll get into all that with Brian. Also going to hear his perspective on the Penn State players uh, of the future, who he saw down at the Under Armour All-America game. During a week of practice evaluation and eventually that game down there as well. So we'll talk about the early enrollees in depth with him. Uh, but for now, let's turn our attention to Mark, and and we got a lot to get into because it's been a while.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, obviously, I'm just filling in for Sean. I know people love to hear Sean, but uh, barring doing some computerized version of his voice, uh, he was not going to be here. But I'm looking forward to filling in and helping out on this one, and probably getting involved in these a little bit more now that we're out of football season and we're not going to be doing the nitwits podcasts uh, in the off season. Absolutely. Well, we're looking out the the window right now at a, at a gray thirty-something
0: state college, but just last week. Mark, you and I were down in Central Florida for the Citrus Bowl. Uh, we had our great intern, Grace Brennan, shooting photos during practices leading up to it. Beautiful week uh, uh, weather-wise. Not exactly poetry in
1: motion once the game started, though. Uh, in-, in Camping World Stadium, yeah, there were some questions from the Kentucky side. If you remember, I did a five questions thing with the uh, with our Kentucky publisher one of the writers down there and one of the questions he had for me is what is Penn State's motivation here Kentucky went into that game really clearly motivated to get to that 10 win plateau where they haven't been since what 76 77 uh it was a huge game for them and really early in that game Tyler I you know we were both sitting there I did not get the sense that Penn State was playing with kind of the sense of urgency and the sense of purpose that Penn State was. They really didn't until they got behind uh, and Trace McSorley was kind of able to bring him back. But to me, that was part of the story of that game. Obviously, the other story, the complete disaster of special teams. I mean, there's, I wrote it after the game and sometimes you write stuff after the game. And you get feedback on the boards. And I always ask people for feedback. Hey, let me know what you think. You get some and, there? Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. But, I, you know, I always appreciate it. And I tell people, even if it's critical, that that helps us form our opinions. And, you know, I'm always going to have my opinions. But I've been wrong once or twice in the past. But my point being, a lot of times you write something directly after the game you have some time to think about it, and you think, you know, maybe I, I wasn't quite – I was looking at it exactly the right way. The special teams were an absolute disaster. And really, barring those special teams issues, I think Penn State, you know, wins that game, I don't want to say easily, but comes out of it. But listen, I think that all kind of plays hand in hand. I thought I thought uh, Kentucky came out, played uh, bet- more mistake-free football, uh, didn't screw up on special teams, And then at the end, I have to give Kentucky a lot of credit. When they needed to put together a drive, they went to their bread and butter, the running game, were able to pull the game out. So uh, I I think it was one of those deals where you're looking at a Kentucky team that wanted it a little bit more. By the time Penn State started to think, uh uh-oh, You know, we're in a little bit of trouble here. It ended up being too little too late. Yeah, you say, you know, maybe not as aggressive as Kentucky on the field early,
0: but the play call early. How about that? I mean, and obviously it started with that. The failed uh, fake punt um, turned out disastrous. Jonathan Thomas in his final game in a Penn State uniform couldn't get full control of the football and it cost them. And uh, we saw a similar call um, in a much different situation, though, against Indiana on a run on a fake punt that failed as well. Um, this time around, though, you knew, I mean, I think a lot of us thought this was a game where if you score 30, you're going to win. I thought, you know, really quickly giving up that field position, a very big risk. And I, I know they have a lot of faith in Jonathan Thomas, but let's face it, he's been on campus five years. He hasn't had a lot of experience touching the football, and, you know, Kentucky's going to have their ears pinned back on something like
1: that. Well, and what was the strength of Penn State's team through the end of the season? Defense. It was the defense. Yeah. So all of a sudden you're putting your defense in a tough spot. Not only that, you're giving Kentucky offensive momentum. Now, obviously, that didn't lead directly to an offensive play. The offense had to come out and make a play. But there was a juice and energy after that. I I really have an issue with that play call. Uh, And, we were again, we were talking about this at that point of the game. I just don't think you need it. I don't think you need to come out and establish anything right there and then. Um, I think you want your defense – listen, you come out – you, you take the opening kick, number one. I don't know that I would have done that. Now, that's hindsight being 2020. Uh, but I, I actually joked during the game, Penn State may have been better off uh, kicking off in both halves, the way, the way the offense was playing there for a while. But I don't think you need that there, and I don't think you need it at that spot of the field. To give them that good a field position just made no sense. But, Tyler, it it wasn't just that. I mean, to me, one of the more uh, overlooked special teams gaffes in that game was the the kickoff out of bounds to start the second half. I I don't know what they – listen, I get that all year long they were trying to directional kick. But if Cheka had one issue throughout the year, what was it? It was kick. Hey, how many times did he kick it out of bounds? Yeah. I mean, I don't have the stats here in front of me, but it had to be. Power was three there or for him all season. The accuracy was not right. But so, w- w- having said that, I mean, how was that not addressed during the course of the season? And again, I get that. That's a tactical thing that they're trying to kick it down into that corner to make them return it, and and you you have an opportunity to stop them. But again, listen, you come out of the the second half, you had generated some momentum at the end of the first half, and that immediately kind of wipes it out. And again, a special teams play gives Kentucky momentum, and they were able to take advantage of it. Yeah,
0: and to Penn State's defensive credit, they held Kentucky to a field goal on that first drive, which felt like a win for for Penn State at the time, considering the circumstances. But what then? you then saw happen to this defense, and it's really what plugged Penn State when Penn State was at its worst and even at its best this season at times, inability to sustain offensive drives. Your defense needs to get going out there. You're missing, by the end of the game, they're missing uh, Cam Brown, knocked out of the game after ejected for targeting. They're missing uh, Robert Windsor, who had a really strong finish to the season. Um, and so, so those things stack up, and I think – Benny Snell, you saw towards the end. Uh, he's a guy who knew he was playing his final college game. He was wearing his heart out uh, you know, in front of his uniform, and he was able to, to pick up a couple key first downs. And I think over the course of this game, Trace McSorley was awesome in the fourth quarter. I want to get that in a second. But it was exactly what we saw exactly four months earlier on September 1st when this team made its debut against App State. The lack of continuity only I mean, anywhere downfield in the passing game, except maybe the Pat Fryermuth just has not been there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the, the key play to me, and, and again, I keep referencing us sitting up in the uh, in the press box, when McSorley gets gets injured and Clifford comes in for one play, what were we saying? We were saying I, to each I, other... I said, they're going to let him throw it deep. Right. And he's going to take the chance. If it, he has it, he's going to throw it. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm like, absolutely. They are going to bomb this thing deep. And what do they do? They throw it deep. And what happens... Tompkins drops it. This is your senior receiver. Listen, I, I, I hate being overly critical of college players, but the, these receivers, obviously, I, I mean, a master of the obvious here, really let the team down, especially the veteran guys with the drops all year. And that was just another prime example of what you can't do. That's the ball that the last couple of years uh, that, that Deshaun Hamilton's catching, that Chris Godwin's catching. Those are the plays that they were making. And just, uh, again, just think of how unbelievable that play would have been. A guy comes in for one snap, throws another bomb, and, uh, you know, you're able to do it. But that, that kind of just epitomized the issues with this offense all year. Uh, you know, the other thing I would say is that, to me, and this is more of, a, of an overall statement about the offensive line in general uh, over the course of the year, I just I thought the offensive line underperformed from what I expected going into the season. I don't think they were nearly uh, as dominant. Listen, there were games when they played well, mm-hmm. and the games that they dominated were typically against lesser teams. But there were even some lesser teams I would throw Rutgers out there where they didn't necessarily dominate. So I just thought that was one area where we could – Listen, we've been ripping the receivers all year. People have been tough on the receivers all year. To me, the other area of the offense that was really an issue was that the offensive line. This, to me, was supposed to be the year that you had all these veteran guys. Everybody had played. You had, what, six or seven guys with starting experience. And I just don't think it came. I don't think it ever gelled the way you would hope it would. And you compare that to what the Kentucky offensive line did late in that game. Yep. And, you know, mm-hmm. the thing about Snell on that last drive – He wasn't ripping off 15-yard gains. They were three yards. They were four yards. They were five yards. They were grinding out, and and that's what we didn't see from Penn State. And he wasn't searching for for where he was going to run. He knew the lane, and if it was there, he was going to take it. He was going to surge as far as he could. And that's where – I'm not being negative toward the Penn State defense on that because by that point – Again, you know, if if you would have thought Penn State's defense would have allowed the number of points it did, which ended up being what? I mean, you twenty-seven take, yeah. points. Well, but seven of those were on kickoff return uh, on, on a punt. Return, I'm sorry, punt return, a punt return. So if you yeah. were to tell me going to that game that the Penn State defense is going to allow twenty points, sure, and three of those were going to be a, were going to be on a short field due to uh, a, a botched fake punt. I would say, hey, you're going to be in good shape. So I'm not being negative toward the Penn State defense there. What I am saying is, by comparison, you look at what that offensive line in of Kentucky did when it had to do it, and it and it got the job done. It melted the clock at the, in the final uh, seconds, uh, uh, final minutes against what had been a very good defense at the end of the year. All right, and uh, and I think what you saw from Kentucky, the way. I think Penn State did exactly
0: what they wanted to against quarterback Terry Wilson. I don't think you could have asked for much more. He got loose a couple times, but they they recovered. He never got loose for 50 yards. Um, He certainly didn't dictate anything with his arm. Uh, But I will say, the way they were able to get Lynn Bowden involved, and he's a guy that we heard all week in practice. He's an X-Factor for Kentucky. They know it. We know it. obviously showed that with the punt return touchdown, but I just found their way— to design plays to get him the ball in space. And I feel like on the other side, right. everyone's taking a long look at
1: K.J. Hamler getting two touches. Right. And that's – that's it, it, I knew exactly where you were going when you said that, and I think I mentioned that after the game. You cannot have a player as dynamic as K.J. Hamler, and he only gets two targets in a game. I think he had two targets and one sort of carry type thing. But, you know, to me, you – That was another fault of the offense, I think, is that they were unable to, first of all, they were unable to identify their playmakers. Uh, Now, obviously, they identified Hamler very early, but to me, I will go back to what I said coming out of the bye week. I think coming out of the bye week, you already knew that your receivers, your veteran receivers were struggling, uh, that they weren't getting the job done that is the point that I would have pulled the red shirts of Dotson and I would have pulled a red shirt of Shorter. And I said it at the time. This isn't hindsight. I mean, you know, I was banging that drum. And, yeah. And I felt like maybe I was being overzealous. But it became more
0: of a like early season struggles then became a reason why you're dropping games and a reason why you're still dealing with issues. And to me, the tipping point on that, where you've got to reassess everything, personnel particularly – is after Michigan State. Something wasn't working. I mean, I guess that leads us into the fact that, you know, they've now made a change there at wide receiver. And uh, I do want to get to the positives from the Citrus Bowl, but while we're on this subject... <laughs> and another thing. Yeah, yeah. But um, obviously, um, you know, David Corley, uh, less than a full year into his ten-year at Penn State, relieved of duties, obviously, tough thing. You've covered hundreds of coaches uh, during your career. I- I've worked with several coaches who have gotten this kind of news and what it does to their families, so... Obviously, tough situation there, but it was clear um, by the end of the season, there was frustration building up. KJ Handler came out in, in big support of Corley and, and saying that that his group needed to take ownership. They were the ones not executing and, and kudos to KJ for, for coming out on Twitter and saying that. but at the same time, the, the frustration was apparent. The last question we got in with KJ after the Citrus Bowl was what's been the why have drops been such a prevalent issue? Nate Bauer actually asked that question, and KJ said it's not it won't happen again. And when he was asked why as a follow-up, he said it won't happen again. He didn't raise his eyes, very angry about how things turned out.
1: Yeah, Corley was put in a tough spot. and This was a change they had to make. But, you know, he comes in here as running back's coach, and then they, they have to quickly move him to receiver's coach because you bring in uh, Jaywan Sider, who clearly has proven himself to be, you know, <laughs> being able to coach at this mm-hmm. level. But I don't know how you take somebody who was the receiver's coach at Army— which is a completely different animal than coaching receivers at Penn State. And it just it, you know it, it didn't work, and I would put that I would put that on Franklin to an extent. I mean, I I think going back, you wonder he's been very good at making a lot of these personnel moves, but I think that one in particular, he put everybody in a bit of a tough spot. But to his credit, he realized it was an issue and, and made the change that he felt he needed to make right after the season. And I think most people agree. You know, the other guy is Juwan Johnson that we really didn't yeah, mention. I was going to try to bring yeah, him. It next. looked yep. like. Uh, it sure looked like from his uh, Snapchat that he had some sort of hand surgery or something after the season. I don't know if you were familiar with that, but somebody yeah, I saw sent some me, uh, social media. Yeah, somebody sent me something. Up. So, it, you know, obviously there was something there with him all year that we didn't quite know about. He missed some games early in the year. Uh, I mean, but- something tells me he he had a lit- maybe a litany of things
0: because he was limping off the field. Uh, you know, looked like a lower body issue after an Indiana game, and then there were some other things that popped up. I mean, it was just a very tough to get a read on Jawan Johnson from start to finish because we're talking about a guy last summer people are saying he's going to go out be the number one target even if he doesn't put up a ton of stats he's still going to look the part and he's going to get an NFL payday at the end of the road now he's coming into a situation where he's got one year of college eligibility left he's got to be healthy I know he's focused on things outside of football as well but if he wants to play professional football it's a major bounce back and quite frankly Penn State's either going to need him to step up or, you know, maybe step aside because there is a well, youth movement.
1: That's what I Listen, he's going to be a member of the team. There's oh, no of course, question that, about that, yeah. but he's going to be fighting for a job. But last I mean, year he was a slam no, dunk first teamer, right? I, no doubt about him. No, yeah. I mean, and, and I was one of the people who was saying, I mean, there, there were former players who were set telling me that you look at his combination of size and athleticism and that could translate into being a first round pick. Now, the issue with, with Juwan, and again, I've never coached uh, but he just isn't a natural receiver. I mean, you know, you see Dotson out there, and you see Hamler out there, you see some of these other kids out there, and they just look like natural, natural receivers. Jawan just there doesn't some. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, it's kind of missing when he's out there on the field. And I hope for him, his sake, he's able to find it because he does have the tools. You know, physical and. uh you know, athletically, size-wise and all that stuff, to be an NFL receiver, I just think he really has a lot to prove in this next year. Yeah, Jawan grew up in in Glassboro High. He went to Glassboro High School, made his name there.
0: I grew up about 40 minutes south of that. So I was well aware of Jawan Johnson fairly early in his high school career. I went to school with his older brother who went to the NFL. And I always said, his brother played NFL defensive end. He he looks like the same frame uh, at wide receiver. But even in high school, through this process, um, he's always been a guy that you're like, you get him on campus and you mold him into what you want him to be. There's so many positions you can do with the player this size, this stature, and he was dominant, as you'd expect, in southern New Jersey as a receiver. It's gotten kind of to this point where what else does he have in that arsenal? And, and that's, that's something that we're going to have to find out this offseason. Uh, and and that's also a thing where you wonder if, if a change in receivers coach, yeah. for a guy like him especially, who, who needed to be brought along and had all this raw potential – you know, Josh Gaddis, if there's anything that people say about Josh Gaddis, it's his attention to details are, are incredible at the receiver position and what he brings there. Can't say I got to know David Corley enough to give a, a strong opinion there because, you know, he, he was not here that long. Um, but certainly in a, in a year where you needed at least one of these veterans to take a next step in their career, they all regressed. Uh, you know, I, I think you can certainly say DeAndre Tompkins for what was expected dropped away too many passes, came up with zero catches in too many games. Juwan Johnson, it's unquestionable that he didn't reach the expectations. And Brandon Polk, this is really, you know, the first long-term look we got at him for a while. And by the end of the season, you know, he's running with the third team before these games and don't see much of him. So I think this was a year where one of those guys, you can't have K.J. Hamler as impressive as he is, to carry
1: that load as the guy in the passing game after not playing for a year and a half.
0: And let's face it with KJ, you need a complimentary receiver who has the, I, I thought, you know, John Johnson, KJ Hamler. can you get a better compliment of, of different kind of receivers in one group than they had? And it just didn't pan out. And, uh, you know, you get to the point now where as of Thursday afternoon, we're not aware of what the wide receivers coach situation looks like, but I would expect that one not to linger on much further. It's time to get back to recruiting. It's time to start training these guys. Um, And uh, so I I don't think that's a spot that will remain open. And we should note, Phil Galliano, as of this conversation, remains in the special teams coordinator spot. That's been a highly speculated situation. Um, So I think there may be some surprise at this point, nine days, 10 days removed from the Citrus Bowl, that that there's only been one staff change. But we will see what happens as the winter moves on. Uh, Things are still moving. The carousel is still in motion across college football. But Mark, we can't leave the conversation in Orlando without getting to some of the good. Let's start with Trace McStorley, and, and it was kind of one of those things where you're watching those first two quarters, and this is before we know the extent of any injury, really, and you're just saying the supporting cast doesn't look ready to pick him up. He does, he's not necessarily on his A game today. It looks like he's going to go down in kind of a, a ho-hum manner, and, and that's going to be you know kind of a bummer to see his career end that way. Leaves the game. Goes around the press box. Our, our buddy Rich and, and, and others are told
1: and others, <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and, and others are told that Trace McSorley has a broken foot. His career's done. You know, his game's done. They're gonna announce it on TV. Clifford goes in. We move on. And you know, you figure, out oh, that's an unfortunate final chapter for McSorley. And then meanwhile, we're reading this on Twitter. I turn to you. I say, is that Trace McSorley down there in both of his pleats throwing the ball to Jawan Johnson on the sideline? That's where things got weird, right, Mark? Yeah, that
1: was <laughs> unlike anything I've ever seen. One of the most telling comments uh, in the postgame, and I, I'm not sure if you were there for it or not, but... Um, Trace, when you interview Trace, you're always going to get a good answer. He very uh-huh. rarely gives like a one-word answer. And somebody – I'm paraphrasing the question here, and I apologize if, apologize if I don't get it just right. But it was – somebody said to Trace, when when that happened to you, when you were out for that series, did you think uh, – my career's going to end the same Hackenberg. way Christian Hackenberg yeah. did. He brushed he no. that one off pretty fast. He said no. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was like he didn't want to talk about Christian Hackenberg on that. Day. No, no. But I think <laughs> yeah. he all, I think there was also a, a sense that when Hackenberg and listen, Hackenberg was a warrior for that team. He he took a greater beating than any Penn State quarterback ever. But I do think there was a sense in his in his in the Tax Slayer Bowl that he might have been able to go back in. Uh, I think with Trace McSorley, he was going to go out on his shield, as they say, that whatever he could do to get back, you know, as, as it was happening... I thought the staff was crazy for doing it because if he's truly had a broken foot. But from what we were later told, the doctor said that he could do no further damage. I will take the coaching staff at its word on that uh, and that it was a matter of pain management. And Trace told us that as well. Yeah, that it, it, Now, they never told us what the injury was, which is their prerogative. But if he was able to manage the pain and do it, I thought it was a good – it was nice to see him get back in there and to, to do what he was able to do. Again, all year long, I I had done these question swaps with opposing sites uh, previewing games, and every one of them would ask me, you know, what is it about Trace McSorley? There was always a question about McSorley. And the one thing I, I tried to say all the time is that Trace McSorley, to me, what it boiled down to is if he was your quarterback, you were going to be in the game at the end of the game except for two games in his career, both of them at Michigan, he was going to put you in a position to win the game. And More, he was physically broken
0: in that Michigan right. game.
1: Yeah, yeah. right, you're right. And so, and the first one, or in the yep. second one. Yep. The first one, that was just... Sure, I yeah. mean, so that, that's two games out of 30, however many games that, that, that he started. So the point being is that you can talk about him as a passer, you could talk about him as a runner, you could talk about him doing the RPO, you can talk about this. The bottom line is... Trace McSorley was going to put you in position to win the game, more so than Saquon Barkley, more so than Chris Godwin. I mean, the common thread in all those, all those games and all, with all those teams was Trace McSorley. And more often than not, you were going to win the game. Now, you might come up short, but he's going to give you that opportunity to win. And I think as I look ahead, and I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, however the quarterback situation plays out that is going to be the thing that they have to replace I don't care if you're going with more of a running quarterback if it's more of a dropback quarterback whatever you need the guy with that heart who's going to put you in position to win the game every single time or the vast majority of time
0: and, and it goes yeah it goes beyond the arm strength the foot speed with, with a guy like this and, and obviously the measurements as his career has, has told and, and I will say I mean we're, we're going to learn a lot about that group but uh the work ethic you hear about day-to-day, day-to-day. And a lot of this is going to sound like hyperbole to Penn State fans because you listen to this content every week and you read the content every week. And I can't tell, me, tell you how many times I've typed the word McSorley in the past 24 months. has been a lot. Um, but nationally, the respect he receives, I saw players walking out of that Kentucky locker room taking moments to stop over oh, and make man. sure Trace McSorley, he, while he was dealing with media, making sure that they knew that they were tipping their cap on their way out. And we watched Trace McSorley walk out. Um, you know, he was certainly favoring that foot. He had a big boot there, swarmed by media. And that's what I think I'll take away from Trace McSorley um, beyond just the heart that he showed on the football field is he always stepped up, looked you in the eye when you asked the question and answered it to the Where best lose. of his knowledge. And I'll tell you what, it was it was different demeanors every time, the, the losses this year. You know, Michigan, I think everyone was just in a little bit of state of shock. After the Ohio State game, Trace was pissed. He was pissed. And I'm sure there's a number of reasons why, but he was close to having the best individual game and pulling out one of the greatest memorable wins that he could. Putting
1: himself in Heisman, positions. right? I
0: mean, yeah. we're still talking about <laughs> at that point everything's on the table: Heisman, right. national championship, everything's on the table. He was pissed. Michigan, Michigan State game. Then it took a different turn, and it was like it, he started to, to be more of an angry veteran, and he was like, "We got to start looking in the mirror. Yeah. We got to do this together." Um, and I think after this one, it was just kind of, there was a finality to it. And there was a sense that while he certainly wanted to secure win number 32 as a starter, which he already set the record for wins as a starter at Penn State, at quarterback, I think even coming off of a loss, he was content with what he put out there in that final frame of the game. And so it was one touchdown, uh, drive. And I look at you and said, oh, yeah, that's nice. That's nice to see. Kind of cool story. It's, it's still 27 to uh, 14 at the time. Um. Uh, 27 to 10. And right. then and then another touchdown drive, and you're saying, defensive stop here. I could do something. And defense did its job. Get the field goal. Pinnaker, who misses first two, comes through for you. And you and I were both on the same page in the press box. I think most of the people that I think are of sane mind in the press box were pretty much on the page that you do kick that field goal with three timeouts. Your defense has been your spearhead for yeah. the final half of the season. They played very well. You take your chances with Benny Snell. It turns out in this situation, Kentucky, they've got an All-American up front. By the way, Kentucky is a very good team. Everyone's going to keep saying you lost to Kentucky and it wasn't on a basketball field. The basketball court, this was their best season in 40 years. This was a very special Wildcats team. Um, but ultimately, it came down to the fact that they got him the ball back, but he had one second. What can you do with that? And it would have been something. And it already was something to see that all go down. And, and I think that's the long-term takeaway for me. There's a lot of things that we're going to – analyze the heck out of this offseason and, and in the past week everyone has to just check our message boards everyone's focusing in on the citrus bowl what happened and what didn't happen but i think what long term we're going to remember when we look back on that week in orlando is how the game ended what mcsorley pulled on the line and uh you know that was his curtain call that was really it i know he did the lap around beaver stadium after the win at maryland but that was it and everyone across the country started turning back to that game when they heard what was going on and right. i think there were a lot of trace mcsorley Fans in living rooms across America.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll tell an interesting kind of behind-the-scenes story. A few days before the game, they did a big media party at a place, and I think you may have been there and had a beverage and some stuff to eat. Uh Uh, I know I was there for a while, and as I was walking in, someone said, Hey, Mark, how's it going? And uh, it was Rick McSorley, Trace's dad. Mm. Uh, so I had to go in and get myself checked into the media party when I came back out and Rick McSorley was there with a bunch of other parents and I pulled them aside. I said, Hey, I just want to tell you, you know, that your kid, I don't care what people say about him as a player. When it came to dealing with the media, he was terrific. He came out after wins, after losses. He spoke his mind. He gave you a good answer. He was respectful. He really handled himself incredibly well. And so that's one of the neat things when you're at these bowls where you might run into a parent and you can tell them what it meant. Because a lot of times people in our business take it for granted. Yeah, You know, it's like they owe us interviews. These these guys – Listen, I would understand it after a tough loss every now and then if a kid didn't come out. But this kid was coming out after every single game, a lot like Matt McGloin did, like Michael Robinson did, like you know, Daryl Clark, a lot of the Penn State quarterbacks. But not only did he come out, he handled himself really well, and it was nice to be able to, to get that across to his dad. Because, you know, everybody's telling his dad, oh, he's such a great player, he's this, he's that. Well, from our perspective, it was a little different. He, I thought he was tremendous working with the media. And I really, now is fun, because now... I get to become a Trace McSorley fan. Right, the relationship and, and kind of and, and kind of root for him, yeah. The same way I did for guys like Sean Lee, even though Sean Lee went to the hated Cowboys. The Giants uh, got a guy, too. Yeah, and Saquon. <laughs> yeah, all these great Penn State players go to these teams I hate. But I'll, I'll always pull for these guys yeah. just because of... Kind of, I don't want to say the relationships because you can't become friends with these guys while you're covering them. But it's uh, a Not respect. anymore. I mean, yeah. it's a respect, but it's it's going to be fun pulling for him. I don't know what his odds are of making it at the next level. I do know this much: I would not bet against that guy. I would like not that. bet against him. Yeah. yeah,
0: and and I, I don't. And my question is: if the NFL isn't open for business for him right away? Does he explore their avenues and see if he can work his way to the NFL? Absolutely. I think he would. I, yeah. I think he's a guy who wants to take this as long as he can. And by the way, asking asked him this during the Citrus Bowl media day about coaching, something he'd absolutely be into. I think he's going to have plenty of opportunities. He's a personable guy. If he wants to stay in football, he will get a job very quickly and be able to rise up the ranks. And talking about how he already deals with media, deals with uh, with with the huddle in the locker room, could be a home run someday. Uh, it'd be interesting enough to follow his career. But the other the other positive... Micah Parsons, on the other end of the spectrum, Some were only just getting to know. I thought he played his best football of the season in his 13th game. He didn't start. He played a lot of football, though, and he was flying around. Some people are going to point to some excessive things he did. He drew a penalty on the sideline. But he was playing without the the kind of the leash that we saw. I think it's an opposed thing. I think he just didn't trust things. He didn't want to overstep his bounds. He didn't want to get pulled off the field because he was in the wrong position. I think by the time he got to Game 13 – Four months into his college career, there was a, a little bit more reckless abandon, which is really what defined his abilities in high school.
1: I never quite understood throughout the season what they were getting at when they were saying he needs to embrace everything. And I, did you ever get that? It was like some sort of mystical thing that he didn't. I that, just know my, he kept playing more and more.
0: Right. Right. Oh, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. I,
1: I think I would have played him more throughout the season, and I don't want to. I, I don't want to be one of these people who's dog and co-a Farmer because to me. I think Koa was in a tough spot. You know, you're the veteran who's playing ahead of the obvious superstar in the making. Koa right. doesn't write the starting lineups, I don't think. No, right? no. But and, <laughs> you know what? I, I had an opportunity to talk to him before the bowl game, and he was terrific. And I'll, I'll, I'll post something on this uh, in the next few days, hopefully. But, uh, he, you know, to me, he ended up being a real leader and led by example that even when he wasn't getting the majority of snaps like in the uh, in a bowl game. Well, I guess he still got a lot of snaps because Cam Brown was pulled out and he had to move over there. But regardless, I thought he handled himself well throughout the season. Do not think he's in the same league as Micah Parsons, though. I, I would have liked to have seen him get Micah Parsons on the field more throughout the season. Uh, but again, I'm not a coach. Uh, his upside, Tyler... It's, it's unbelievable. You know, I think the one thing that we learned is that he is fully capable of playing linebacker and playing linebacker at an elite level. To me, that's very important because they have a bunch of defensive ends, even with Sharif Miller going, who are capable of playing at an elite level. Even though Etor didn't really step up in the in the bowl game, we saw it for most of the season, and we know that there are other players there. Jason Oa, you know, I think you're going to see better things from Shane Simmons when he's completely healthy. Uh, to me, I think you're going to see some very strong players at defensive end, and that's why. To have Parsons prove that he can play linebacker at a very high level was very important. Yeah, and I, and I think with Micah
0: Parsons, another thing that a lot of people learned, um, and I think the jury was out with people who just didn't know him at all. Um, was he was he going to buy into the team thing? Because they saw a guy who was obviously you know focused on himself during the recruiting process, which is what you should be. You should be focused on yourself. Um, but you know he wasn't afraid to, to use social media to talk about it, and and a lot of people viewed that. And he decommitted from Penn State, and, and people wanted to say, well, is he going to buy into the team? It was not an issue from day one. I mean, the, everything you heard feedback from Brent Pye was, if anything, he was bothering the coaches because he wanted more intel and more info, and, and he was tapping into his resources as a veteran group. And I'm telling you, talking to the recruits now, right. they keep telling me Michael Parsons is the guy in that locker room, along with Jesse Lucetta, who is recruiting them very hard. And so when it's a true freshman doing that for you, and, and maybe that next face of the franchise kind of guy... Uh, that's huge. He is all in, and he's invested for Penn State, and that's something that Lions fans should be excited about.
1: He's a very intelligent guy, by the way. I mean, I had the opportunity to interview him a couple times uh, when he was coming up through the recruiting process, and he he first of all he knew what he was doing with all that social media stuff. He I, he he would never admit it, but like when he named his dog Brutus or whatever, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was looking to get a rise out of people. He was a kid, okay. But you're right. Now Now he's in the program, and I was going to mention what, what you said. I don't talk to the recruits now uh, the way that you do or the way that Sean does. And But everything that we're hearing that you're telling me and that Sean's talking about is that the name Micah Parsons keeps coming up as, as somebody who's kind of driving the bus to get kids to to, to, uh, to commit or sign with Penn State. Do you ever think about Micah Parsons? I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, james franklin's kind of go-to guy in terms of who he talks to on the staff the most gets the most input from you know who it is it's deej yeah it's it's dwight gall yeah the the strength coach Yeah, it, it, pay close attention at practice and see how often you'll see micah parsons hanging out with deej now it, for people who, who haven't First of all, I would encourage you to track down some of our videos of Dwight Caldwell interviews because they are always some of the most informative things that we have. Whether it's from Lift for Life or whether it's from the off-season workout session, he gives great info. And I- I'm telling you, he's really a smart guy, and he's a guy that Franklin has leaned on since his days at Maryland. He's like Frank. What, you, what would you call it? It's like confidant or. I don't know how you would, what you would say, but to me, the reason he's a guy in the room. You know, he's a guy in the room. The reason I'm mentioning this is because clearly Parsons picked up on that. (laughs) And I'm telling you, you see him talking to this guy constantly. And I think that's showing you that Micah Parsons is smart enough to know, you know what, if Franklin's leaning on this guy, I'm going to try to, and DJ. Deals with players a little differently. Franklin can be tough on players that practice and stuff. People who haven't been there, he'll yeah he'll he'll do some yelling and he'll yell at guys to run and do stuff. Deej is a little like more low key. Uh, I'm sure he gets after it a little bit in the weight room, but that's just a little snippet of things that that hit me throughout the course of the season. And I saw it again at the bowl game where and I could I could throw a photo up of Parsons sitting there with Deej Deej had his arm like in a cast or something on the sideline talking. I, I don't know what they're saying, but I would love to know. When we get an opportunity to talk to Micah, which is hopefully in the next uh, couple months, Yeah, hopefully we get the opportunity to ask him why he's spending so much time. That'll be to a teach. long-awaited
0: interview. That'll be a long-awaited interview for a lot of people in the media, and well, especially,
1: especially those who had not
0: dealt with him as a recruit. Right, it's They like, just read about the guy and, and this kind of, uh, you know, he was arguably the most publicized recruit to come out of Pennsylvania in terms of where we are now with recruiting coverage. I, I don't think there's much that compares to where we are in 2018 and the way we handle it. So a lot of people know Michael Parsons, and they're going to get to know him better in a few Future. We will be there. We will us. be there. Yeah, yeah. He,
1: he has a lot of the same personality traits as Lavar Arrington. Interesting. And I'm not saying I don't know that they're the same exact kind of player. I think Micah is maybe bigger at this point. Uh, Lavar was so explosive; it was you know he had like a 40 whatever inch vertical leap. But I I know Lavar, and I knew Lavar when he was when he was young. It was a little different covering people back then. Uh, but the personality traits. You're looking at very strong-willed kids, uh, big personalities, dynamic personalities, and we're going to have – you guys are going – folks are going to have fun with Micah Parsons' coverage over the next couple years, believe me. I think Lavar was the reason why they started doing conference calls because so many people wanted to talk to him. Hmm. They used to do individual Change calls. Changed the game. Yeah, I think it was a game changer. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. two
0: number 11s. Uh, it will be interesting uh, to see how that progresses. And and, and we're going to talk a lot about the younger players making their moves. Uh, but quickly, some guys who are not going to be around the program anymore. We talked about this a while. Seniors are gone. All the anticipated seniors you'd expect. Uh, Sterling Jenkins was the only uh, non senior who elected to. Wish to, him luck. Wishing him luck, yeah. And, and Where's so, he going?
1: He's going to. He is going to. Was it Robert Morris? No. Or? Uh, oh, Duquesne. 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 Duquesne, yeah. So, so wish him, him luck. Sorry listen, it took us so long to that, that had to be a tough situation yeah. for that kid. He comes in, as I think he was a five-star, very highly Top-ten tackle. Yeah, believe, yeah, and it just, you know, clearly it didn't work out at this level. Listen, he's a big guy, has all the physical physical skills. It, it just never came together for him. So hopefully something works for him uh, at Duquesne. Got his degree. Yeah. Grounded out on the foreign team. Sure, he made a, his sure, made a ton of lifelong friends. I mean, yeah. he still had the experience, but obviously... But he was still part of the program, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, best. I didn't want to let that go without yeah. saying best of luck. Absolutely.
0: So, and then the usual suspects of senior class, guys like Amani Arroyo, Nick Scott... Um, I can go. I mean, I don't want to name everybody, but I will say nick Scott. awesome interview over the course of his season to two year captain, probably a guy who didn't get as much spotlight as, as a lot of these other veterans in the past couple of years. Cause he was a, a late starter on defense and a guy who spent a lot of his time on special teams, bounced around the roster in terms of position, but another guy who would look you in the eyes after every win or loss and, and give you the story and, and give you the straight story for the most part of what he could tell you so wishing them well but there are some early departures uh, some of these guys have their degrees I mean let's be clear some of them are, are leaving as Penn State alums others are taking a chance and they're going to go pro um, so quickly the five names two on defensive line Sharif Miller Kevin Givens two on the offensive line Ryan Bates Connor McGovern and then you got Miles Sanders out of the backfield Sanders, McGovern, uh, Givens—guys who who I think—I'm sorry, Sanders and uh, and McGovern and Miller are guys that we had heard for a while were going to be maybe leaning this way. I guess I'm not surprised by Bates, um, but I will say the Kevin Givens—that one jumped out to me a bit.
1: Yeah, I, uh, listen, I don't want to. It didn't jump out to me, but I still scratched my head over McGovern. I, I think that you know Mel Kuyper and I. I Mel Kiper, Kiper is obviously very good at what he does, and he's he's he knows more about the draft than I'll ever know. But if Connor McGovern is the number one guard, and I'm, this isn't a knock on Connor McGovern, I mean he's still he's a true junior, so he's still relatively young. I think he has a lot of areas where he could get bigger, where not bigger, but where he could get better. He could get stronger. His technique could get better. I don't think he had a great year. Do you? I mean, I I, I don't I don't know that maybe I'm missing something that the pro scouts are seeing, but I don't see him being a a draft pick on the first day. And and I'll be surprised if he goes on the first two days. So he's one of the guys that I would think, you know, I scratch my head about that saying that he's a good kid from a good family. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't, and I don't know what the financial situation is, but that, and then, you know, Givens to me, I'm not sure what was up there, Tyler. He just, you know, there was he was suspended a couple games, right? And he, he was constantly out. a guy that got a ton of love for, hey, it he might not be showing up in the stat sheet, but Kevin
0: Gibbons is, is kind of, you know, fueling this train in a lot of ways. So it wasn't like, you know, he wasn't a guy you ever heard about. You heard about him positively. Um, it's interesting. I will say out of all these departures, I, I think people may be surprised by this, but I think they're in a pretty good position on the offensive line to not take a step back because of those losses. I mean, Bates and McGovern, 13 Big Ten players. They combined to start 70 games at Penn State. But I didn't go out and, and, and see them routinely dominate. That's my point. And and, they, and, and and I think when you look at a guy like Rasheed Walker, Ryan Bates told you Rasheed Walker can be way better than I ever <laughs> was able to be. Right. And that's why Rasheed Walker was one of the most prized prospects going down at sign day last year. And He's a guy... You know, found himself a little bit of trouble on campus, but I think overall, his development physically, we saw him really get a lot of varsity practice snaps, um, gotten a, a three or four games by the end of the year. I really think the ceiling's high. Anthony Wiggin they bring in as a junior college prospect. Okay, yeah. He's on campus already here in January. I think those guys are really interesting at tackle. Uh, what happens with Des Holmes? He shifted around a little bit. But the crux of all this to me is CJ Thorpe. And you can make the argument with Kevin Givens being involved there too at defensive tackle is what do you do with CJ Thorpe? He, he is the riddle to me. And I think they have to come up with an answer soon because you got to get going with your personnel plan. You got to start preparing for spring ball. Get these guys in the room, watch film, figure out who they're going to be in 2019. And, and right now, C.J. Thorpe, you, I think it's a bit of a tug of a war, I, I would imagine, with Lime Grover and, and Pry and Spencer, because they all see the potential in this kid. And we've seen it, too. Um, to me, though, I think if he does transition back to guard, I think it's a nice group. Uh, and, and Gonzalez comes back, which is, is nice for stability. That was a good, that was that, good that's for really him. important. But I think if, if C.J. Thorpe switches over, he would be the guy I would personally lean to maybe winning that job. I just think he can really blow you up at the guard position and he can bring that nastiness. He has a lot of respect in that locker room. Seems to be a tone setter. I wonder if maybe he's more effective in that role than he would be at, say, your fourth or fifth defensive tackle. And maybe I'm I'm shortchanging it. Maybe with a whole offseason at defensive tackle, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, this guy's going to play defensive tackle in the NFL. We see that happen all the time when the transitions occur. But to me, he is the biggest mystery box in the trenches.
1: Yeah, the the difficult part is when you talk about defensive tackle, um, are we assuming Windsor is going to come back? I mean, that's kind of at at this point. Season ended on a sour note. As we we take this. We, we're assuming right. that he's going to be back, but I mean, things didn't necessarily end on right. You know, with, Fred
0: Hansard. With, last with time we saw him, he's you know he's still in a boot, and so, we don't know
1: what that issue is. I think they may have to take their time before making that decision, mm-hmm. uh, just to to know what they have coming back, especially with losing Givens. But there's no question. I mean, from everything we've heard from James Franklin himself, that C.J. Thorpe has the ability to be the best run blocker on the team, and if you can combine that with him improving as a pass blocker. Uh, then yeah, I mean I think you have to consider it. But they also have Mike Miranda, who I know they've been very high on. Uh, he he saw some snaps this year, not a ton of snaps. Uh, and Des but, Holmes started the season as a second team tackle. Shifted when CJ well, Thorpe shifted, and kind of wondered where his. Well, what do you? I mean, I think CJ Holmes shifted because Des Holmes, was, uh, that, yeah. yeah. C.J. Holmes. We'll get to C.J. Holmes later on we in the We did this the, the last time we were doing one of these. I, was, I got I to got the home. What were we doing? Where I was messing it up. But, yeah, uh, so, yeah, Des Holmes, I think, moved because Rasheed Walker came in. Yeah. And was playing so well at I think offensive tackle. I think he's
0: just, to me, you look at Rasheed Walker, assess what the potential has always been, evaluate what we saw from him during this season and physical growth and a guy who was getting more and more reps – on the practice field, if the pieces are in place entering his second season at Penn State, he's the left tackle in 2019 and beyond. And Will Fries, I think he's a guy that you need to see this next step from for him because I was a little surprised. I thought the confidence he would have gained from, from that red shirt freshman year, you know, his first start at tackle was against Michigan, did pretty well in that game. And and by the time they got to you know this season, the end of it. I would say I was a little surprised Will Fries didn't take that step here in 2018, because he was in that balancing act with Chaz Wright. Never got firm control of the job. Still wondering what what went behind that flip with four games to go in the season. Yeah. Uh, because where where do they feel comfortable with Will Fries? Where does Will Fries feel comfortable? Because to me, you look at Rasheed, you say that's your prototypical left tackle who you want in that spot. We've seen Fries play on the right side, but. For whatever reason, nine games into this year, they made a switch. He went back to left, and I think
1: that leaves some room for question. But well, that's where that's my whole thing with McGovern is that I, I think with Fries there's upside there. There there are areas where you could see him getting better, and I, I think we could have seen McGovern get even better had he stayed. Now with Bates, I you know Bates he's been around. He's a grown man. I mean he's he's been in the program four plus years. Uh, he clearly is is ready to go. I don't know that he has any more that he's going to get done at the uh, at this level. But so yeah, to me, I listen, I look at that O line and I think they're going to be okay. It's just a matter of getting guys, young guys, up to speed, and the spring is going to be really important for a lot of these kids. These guys are gone; they're out of the picture.
0: Uh, and by the way, it feels like Miles Sanders. We hardly knew him, and, and it, it just a joy to to speak with Miles over the course of his career, back to his recruitment. But I wanted to wrap up on this. 11 early enrollees are on campus, Mark. Uh, they're underway with everything. Oh, and by the way, we can break this news a day late. You've probably already read it on Lines 24 7. Mark, go ahead. We got the word from Sean Fitz. The story is published. Good. All right. Penn State has hired, as you already learned by reading Lines 24 <laughs> 7 before I'm reading this to you now, uh, Penn State has hired its wide receivers coach. Uh, they go in the direction of the ACC and find Jared Parker. Duke wide receivers coach uh, I feel like I'm announcing a draft pick um so that's your replacement Jer- Jared Parker 38 year old from Huntington West Virginia Grew up in Kentucky. He was an interim head coach in Purdue before, and he was hired by Duke in 2017. Um, there you go. Receivers coach is fine. Uh, that's going to do it for our conversation with Mark here. Sean will be back as soon as possible. Uh, we're going to talk recruiting. If we let, if
1: you know, unless I would, unless I was so dynamic that people yeah. demand that I keep it ahead, yeah. 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 But, uh, I'm gonna... kidding, Sean, we'll be back.
0: <laughs> Brian, Brian Doan's going to join us in just a moment for recruiting. But, Mark, thanks for, uh, thanks for hopping on in, in a pinch. And as I said, I, I think there's no reason to not do it more often.
1: Absolutely. i got to go get a haircut and, uh, on this end of town, yeah. which is a, a story in, uh, <laughs> to itself. <laughs> All right,
0: let's turn our attention over to recruiting, a huge stretch coming up for Penn State football and really the rest of the FBS world as the traditional National Signing Day as uh, looms large on February 6th obviously we know the early signing period at this point has become the main course 18 prospects signing with Penn State uh, during that signing period 11 of them already on campus as early enrollees but No one better to bring in for these next few pivotal weeks than national recruiting analyst Brian Doan of 24-7 Sports. Brian, first and foremost, I know you're working the phone lines. I know you're going to be even busier when the contact period starts Friday. So here on Thursday afternoon, appreciate you making some time for us.
2: Hey man. Always for you guys. Always. Awesome.
0: Well, I think a lot of folks are really curious on what's next for Penn State. Last year, things were a little bit more simpler. So much of the focus was on Rasheed Walker, making sure they beat out the likes of Ohio State and Virginia Tech for him. I feel like now there's a few more cards on the table, many of them on the defensive line. Who are some names that Nittany Lions fans at this point should be firmly aware of uh, for these next few weeks?
2: Yeah, I mean, the first guy I think of is Devon Ellis out of uh, Maryland, defensive tackle, four-star. Um, I just wrote something today. He's deciding at the Polynesian Bowl, which is no surprise. I mean, we've known that for a month. But it's now SC Penn State. And because of the way things are going on um, with Michigan and some staff changes there, they cannot, you know, they're not going to be able to host him. He's on his way out to Hawaii for the Polynesian Bowl on Thursday night. His mom's from there. He's going to catch up with some family while he's out there. He announces on January 19th at USC and Penn State. And, uh, you know, folks can see where my crystal ball points to there. So that's somebody to be keeping an eye on for, you know, Penn State faithful on January 19th. Um, Jared Harrison Hunt out of New York, another D tackle. Um, Miami's made a great push toward him. I changed my crystal ball pick for him this week. Uh, I'll never say never, but I think when Penn State turns around and offers, you know, a, a European based D tackle yesterday, I think that says a lot about what they think with Harrison Hunt. Um, you know, it, we'll, we'll see exactly what goes on in terms of whether they can really get back heavily involved with Harrison Hunt, but the D tackle I'm talking about is Joseph Darqua going to visit UCLA this week. Virginia's in the mix. Penn State, there's a connection between the guy who runs the European contingent, Brandon Collier, and Penn State coach James Franklin, which is um, something to keep an eye on for the Nittany Lions. And then Smith Vilbert, another defensive lineman from Montville St. Joseph in North Jersey. Keep an eye on him just in terms of he's visiting Florida this weekend. Florida State's trying to get him down on the 25th. He already made his official to Penn State. I still like where Penn State sits in that one. Uh, his family really likes Penn State. His coaching staff likes Penn State. I think it's just a matter of you know, making sure he goes out to see some other places before he comes up with a decision.
0: Yeah, the Dorqua thing was interesting to me, and, and, and Smith Vilbert as well. These are guys who you know, a year ago, they, are, they really aren't on the radar. And, and now here they are getting, you know, calls from all over the country and, and all these different power five offers late. Um, you know, we saw Jason Oway have, have a late climb in the recruiting trail. Um, how, how do teams go about, you know, Penn State, for instance, others in the mix? How do you try to condense two years worth of recruiting into, you know, a matter of months with these late risers?
2: Well, I mean, it's the way it used to be done before recruiting got really crazy, and people wanted to, you know, offer kids when they were in third grade. Um, you know, it, it, you already know who most of your class is. You should any staff and recruiting office worth its salt will have a list of you know X number of kids at every position to to go through tape as the season goes on. I mean. You know, Joseph Darkwood, a kid from Europe, it's not like all of a sudden Penn State or these other schools found out about him. PPI has been bringing kids over for a couple years. They sent one to Michigan, one to Rutgers, a kid committed to Arizona, Georgia Tech, Temple, um You know, some of the kids have been on, you know, dark was not one of them, but some of the kids have been on Penn state's campus before. So it's just, you have your connections and and you, if you know what you're doing as a staff and as a recruiter, you're staying in contact in case it gets down on the list and then you're evaluating the tape and you know, the, the contact period starts up again, where coaches can go out on Friday. Since signing day was the 19th, 20th, 21st, since then, yeah, the holidays are there and you're getting ready for bowl games and all that other stuff. But just because you can't go out and visit schools doesn't mean the contact period, you know, st- you know, they're still going to text and have some phone calls and we're going to evaluate tape and see where they stand on, on boards and I guarantee you most of the programs across the country on Thursday are meeting as a staff to figure out what their you know, really where their concentration is going to be. Moving forward, come Friday when they can go out to schools again.
0: Yeah, and, and you mentioned the the bowl game and and you now that that December practice period, and the holidays, and then you throw in the coaching changes and. It is an interesting time of the year when all that intersects. I'll get to the coaching changes a little bit later with you, Brian, but I do want to bring up one other defensive lineman that I know you spoke with uh, during your trip down to Orlando for the All-America game uh, last week. Jaquaz uh, Sorrells, uh, he's a guy who, yeah. he's you know another Florida guy on Penn State's radar. As things seem to be moving in a direction where you know, he's going to be another guy that, that people need to, to have on their radar with, with Penn State as well.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought him up because uh, at my age, sometimes I forget things. But yeah, Thores is a kid that you know talked about making a visit to Penn State in January. You know, there's a lot of uh, hope as far as Penn State and recruiting in Florida, especially with Juwan Sider and, and what he has with connections with players down there and coaches and programs and getting him on campus. Now, I'm going to guess it's going to be a little chillier in state college than Florida the weekend he's at Penn State. But if weather's going to keep somebody from going to a school, so be it. Um, but yeah, it's a great chance to say, Hey, this is what we need. This is, you know, how you fit into the defense. Here's our depth and we'll see where it goes from there. But, you know, they, they've done a good job with, with Sorrell's. And I think just getting him on campus is a big step. I think you'll know a lot more where his recruitment sits after he comes on campus and, and just what he feels. Obviously he's going to have a, a great time, right? I mean, you know, probably 0.000001 percent of the people come on campus and don't have a great time when they visit um, a school. But it's the connection with the players, and and can he get on the field early? You know, one of the things that's interesting with him is he's a kid that really wants to, you know, help a program take the next step. And so I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with that. And, and I know, you know, with South Carolina um, on him, that's also a, a big thing to look at but you know we'll see what happens with him but he's definitely a guy worth keeping an eye on
0: and uh so we we remember john dunmore was on campus for about 48 50 hours uh and that was enough to to make him commit to penn state and stick with penn state and it is interesting how much an official visit can do uh we'll see what goes on there we're with brian doan right now on the lines 247 podcast i'm tyler donahue in case you missed it earlier Sean Fitz, under the weather right now. And by under the weather, I mean he just can't sustain a podcast. His voice is gone. Uh, But that's all good. We'll carry the load, and and who better to have on but Brian. Um, Speaking of linemen, switching it over to the offensive side, sure seems like Penn State would like to add a fourth offensive lineman to their class uh, they got 24-7 sports top-ranked junior college offensive linemen on campus already with Anthony Wigan. They've got two uh, four-star guard prospects ready to come on campus later in 2019 with Caden Wallace and Salim Wormley. Brian, a lot of folks curious about Doug Nestor, a guy who's still committed to Ohio State, pushed off signing with Ohio State, though, during the early period, exploring his options. Seems like Penn State's still in the thick of that thought process.
2: Yeah, I, I think – Penn state is right there with Ohio state on a place where Nestor can land. Um, He committed to Ohio state really early on dream school, all that jazz before his junior season. And he started hearing rumblings of coaching changes. And when he started hearing that stuff, he started looking around a little bit. Virginia tech got involved. He was going to visit Georgia this weekend, decided, no, he's not going to make that trip anymore. He's talking about making another official to Ohio State. Um, When I spoke to his coach this week, they were checking to make sure that when he made his visit after news came out that Urban Meyer was leaving after the season and Ryan Day would be the coach, Meyer was still technically in charge. So you have the coaching change that takes place after the Rose Bowl. And they want to make sure, yes, he can go make another official visit based on how the NCAA changed its rules. That if there's a head coaching change, you can make a second official visit to a school. But, you know, Penn State makes a lot of sense. I don't think Nestor's a guy that wants to go terribly far from home. Penn State fits into that radius, as does Virginia Tech, as does Ohio State. Penn State, you know, especially with losing a couple kids to the NFL draft now, um, they got to fill some depth there. So getting another offensive lineman, is very important for them and and i think right now for me um i I think it's right about 50 50 on whether he goes to ohio state or penn state and maybe virginia tech makes that push too and gets further involved but he's definitely worth keeping an eye out on
0: and penn state losing a couple early entrances to the nfl draft uh, ryan bates Connor mcgovern on their way to turn pro so Curious to see how they fill those remaining slots. Um, Brian, last question before we move on from some of these uncommitted players and, and and players who have not yet signed. Penn State ends up with one receiver during the early signing period. Pretty good one, in my opinion, and John Dunmore out of Florida. Uh, but along the way, you know, Emery Simmons was committed for a while. They were involved with John Mechie. They were involved, uh, you know, with, with various players over the course of, of the cycle. Um, at this stage, you know, do you foresee any particular names kind of emerging on the receiver scene that Penn State could look towards in the next few weeks?
2: No, you know, you're always looking for it, but right now there's not. I mean, maybe something will pop up in the next week when they start going out and visiting schools again. But right now I I don't really see something where they're going to push terribly hard. Um, You know, I I don't think receiver is a spot that they – First of all, I don't think it's a dire need. Um, I think taking care of the line of scrimmage is a dire need right now, just for the depth. And then, you know, if you're Penn State, you still got to settle on your receiver's coach. So it's it's hard to go out and say, we're going to go get this guy, this guy, or, or we're going to look at him. You make contact with the kid, and this first question is, all right, who's your receiver's coach? But I think before that really, you know, before you see anything with that, I think you need to take a look at, you know, who the receiver's coach is going to be.
0: Sure. Based on current. Penn State personnel, they're looking and going to 2019 with, at this stage, seven of nine of their receivers carrying three years of eligibility or more. So uh, it's certainly loaded up with young talent. Now, Brian... Um, I crossed paths with you brief, briefly in Orlando. I was there primarily to cover Penn State for the Citrus Bowl. Got over there to, to speak with the Penn State guys before I, I came back up to, to the chilly uh, state college area. But uh, and, you, and, and I know you're back in the Northeast, so you feel the pain. But, Brian, when, when you look back at your time in Orlando, specifically with those five Penn State players, um, anything stand out in particular about the way they interacted, um the way they performed uh, obviously most people only get to see the uh, game action there which is really just kind of the punctuation mark of a pretty long week
2: yeah game action is pretty meaningless to be honest with you <laughs> i mean you know one thing you got to be careful when you go to these things are some kids are there on vacation and some kids are there to kind of really prove themselves again and i'm not saying either is right or wrong i'm just saying that's what the fact is um but yeah, I mean, what, what stood out to me is there's some really good players there. First of all, I mean, I, I watched Brandon Smith, the linebacker, you know, five-star kid out of Virginia and just his length and his ability to run and cover ground was amazing. Um, I, I think he's more of an outside guy, to be honest, who can also rush the passer. I mean, if Penn state wanted to change to a three, four, he'd be a perfect guy on the outside, just coming off the edge with his size. I mean, just his length and athleticism was, you know, I I thought was tremendous. Um, I looked at a guy like Dunmore the receiver who you brought up earlier, really good route runner and really tracked the ball. Well, succinct with his routes got out of his breaks. Well, you know, the depth on it, if they wanted a 12 yard route, he was running a 12 yard route. It wasn't 14. It wasn't 10. Um, I, I think he did a lot of really good things there. And then, you know, with the game in itself, you know, the practice was not built for Michael Johnson because practice is pocket passing. They don't even roll you out once in a while. They'll run a, a, a read option or something, but you know, you're not going to see much from a dual threat quarterback. Some of the quarterbacks in the game experience the same thing. And then when you put him in the game, you see his freelance ability, his athleticism, his ability to, you know, you throw a nice touchdown pass he can he can buy time with his feet, and, and he can hurt you in a big way with his feet. And so I had said all week when I was doing critiques of quarterbacks, because that was what I was you know there to watch in my assignment, that it was hard to really say anything about him without understanding you're only seeing part of his game. And so when you did see the game, you did see his ability to move more. And I thought he did a really good job with that. And I also thought to myself when I watched him, I bet you this kid would be a really good receiver and and has a chance to be a really good safety.
0: That brings me up to the next point with Michael Johnson. I mean, the the numbers that he's going to produce in a combine kind of setting – they're going to stand out. The kid stands out when he looks at you and and, and talks to you. I think he's, you know, he's obviously that coach's something, resonates through, seems to have all those qualities you look for. You've assessed a lot of these athletes slash quarterbacks, guys who could probably get on the field earlier if they just said, I'll, I'll be wherever I need to be. But some guys are so ingrained with being the quarterback. I know Michael Johnson seems to be that guy. What do you think about the, the general talent Penn State brings to, to campus with him and also How much of a different quarterback are we talking about than Taquan Roberson out of New Jersey, a guy that I know you've seen pretty extensively?
2: Yeah, uh, well, first of all, when when you bring a guy like Johnson to campus, you understand you're going to have to change some things with his throwing mechanics. So it's going to be a little bit of time before he's ready to get on the field. Now, maybe he's forced to play earlier. You know, you never know with injuries and all that other stuff, but He's a guy that you want to bring in, develop, and really change his throwing motion and, and just make him more of a passer. Uh, it's great when you can run the ball like he can, and, and it really puts a lot of stress on a defense. But you're Penn State, so you're, you're going to win however many games. Just you, you have so much talent. So is he the kid that's going to help you beat Michigan and help you beat Ohio state and programs like that, that that's what you're looking at when you're bringing in a quarterback like him. Um, and, and you see just, I mean you can run it as as a running quarterback. If you can move all over the place, that's great. But in order to be an elite team, at least in my opinion, you have to be able to throw the ball and that threat has to be there. Um, you know, that was a knock on, on JT Barrett for how long that you knew he can run between the tackles and do all that other stuff and make some short passes, but throwing down the fields was not his strength. And, and I think the offense at Ohio state suffered for a little bit because of that. He's different than Taquan Roberson. I mean, Taquan Roberson is a pocket guy who can feel the rush. He's got really good arm strength, pretty accurate pass. So I think he needs to work on that more. Um, he's not a guy that's going to take off and all of a sudden have a, a 50 yard run. Um, I, I think, boy, if i remember remembering right, his testing numbers, I think he was a four, eight or four, nine kid in the 40. Um, from what I remember, but he, he's a, he's a pocket guy. You can move the pocket with him and he can throw on the run. But to me, Taequann Robert, Roberson is not a pure dual threat kid.
0: Interesting. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people see that dual threat label. And then you watch his film, and a lot of his best work is done behind the line of scrimmage. Um, and, and so obviously it's two very different quarterbacks there, but what what's the mindset of Roberson? Because whenever I spoke with him, Didn't seem like a very chatty young man, but a guy who had a lot of confidence. He knew all the way they plan on bringing a second quarterback in. I'm always curious to see how those dynamics go with a two-quarterback class. Um, What do you think about where he is mentally and and, kind of his gamesmanship? I know he led uh, DePaul to a state championship there as a junior.
2: Yeah, and, you know, you're right about him being chatty, and then once you get to know him, he'll talk more. Great kid great family, uh, leader, and he, he really doesn't care if somebody else is coming in. I remember talking to him about Penn State going to bring in two quarterbacks in a class. I'm like, what do you think, man? He's like, yeah, I don't care. I'm like, all right. Uh, did they talk to you about it? He goes, yeah, yeah, I knew it was coming. I don't care. You know, I got to go in and compete, got to win a job. I mean, you know, that's what you have to realize. And, and I think um, a lot of fans get caught up in this, and, and they don't realize what kids are like that are high elite level kids. I mean, you could put up Peyton Manning and take Roberts and thinks he's going to win the job. And that's not a knocker to say that he doesn't, you know, that, that he's overinflated uh, self-importance. No, it's confidence. These kids want to go to places where they will compete with the best. Cause they all think they're the best. Everybody says, well, how can Bama and Clemson keep doing it every year? Because every freshman going to Bama right now thinks they're good enough to start as freshmen, whether it's realistic or not, whatever. That's their mindset, and that's how they think about things. And that's how Roberson thinks about it. He thinks he's going in, and he's got a chance to play as a freshman. Quarterback spot is open. Here we go. Let's go. And so that's his mindset. And so he doesn't really care if there's 400 quarterbacks there or if there's four.
0: Yeah, and I can confirm that every time I brought up the subject, he, he was calm and cool and said, it is what it is, I, I got to go and do what I have to do either way, no matter who's on campus with me. So, um, And then I wanted to go back to the running backs who are going to be sharing the backfield with those guys. Noah Kane, Devin Ford, they were both in Orlando for the event. Um, two guys that, that took very different paths to end up in Happy Valley Noah Kane's currently here as an early enrollee he's got a head start there he is very succinct about wanting to go and compete for the starting job Ricky Slade's back Journey Brown's back CJ Holmes is an interesting guy in that mix uh, coming in from Notre Dame last year Uh, how would you kind of compare and contrast Ford and Kane and if I had to ask you right now who would you pick to be the guy who gets on the field first for the Nittany Lions
2: uh, well, I, I think when you look at who's going to get on the field first, it depends what kind of running back they need, because they're different. Noah can is more of a powerful built guy between the tackles is going to, you know, first contact drag you for seven yards, um, maybe two yards, maybe sevens a lot. Um, Devin Ford is more of a guy who he can get to the edge. He's a lot quicker through the hole. um, you can move them out into the passing game a little bit much more fluid as a runner. Uh, you know, if you just lined them up and had them run against each other, you'd say Devin Ford is a prettier runner than Noah Kane. So, so they're, they're really different players in my mind. And I don't know who's going to get on the field first. Cause I don't know who can pick up a blitz better right now. And I don't know who can, you know, get out of the backfield and be that outlet. That's what's going to decide it. And, and who's going to, neither of them really dance, um, Noah Kane has really quick feet and, and we'll go through the hole and Devin Ford can get through the hole in a heartbeat. But I mean, look, they're both really talented kids. It depends. Does, does Penn State feel like they need more of a power back this year? Well, then, yeah, if it's maybe if it's third and one early against whoever they're playing and you throw him onto the field and he can pick up that first down on third and one, maybe he gets on the field. But it'll come down to who can pick up the blitz.
0: Yeah, Miles Sanders on his way to the NFL, uh Penn State with a really intriguing group of young <laughs> running backs looking to replace him. We're with 24 uh, 7 Sports National Recruiting Analyst Brian Doan. Again, thanks to him for making the time for us today. It's a hugely Hugely important stretch of the recruiting cycle here. A few weeks left in the 2019 cycle. Um, Wanted to touch on Brian really quickly. We can, you know, you can, you don't have to expand on these too much, but I wanted to touch on some of the early enrollees Penn State has on campus. 11 guys on scholarship coming in early is a lot. They also have three walk-on players coming in. But let's focus on some of these scholarship players. Um, We talked about the quarterbacks. They're both there. If you could expand a little bit more on Brandon Smith, because I remember during the course of his high school career, There was conversation even down there on the Louisa County high school staff about switching into a defensive end position. They ultimately left him at linebacker. How rare of an athletic talent is Brandon Smith?
2: Yeah, I mean, he's he's really rare, but in the landscape of elite college football, you, you have to have guys like him. So there's guys, you know, with that length and size and can move. And I mean, the thing is, he's so long and he's so flexible. um, And his ability to change direction is tremendous. Plus he's a really bright kid. So, you know, there's also that aspect of it. Um, But yeah, I I think with him, it's the ability to do different things. You You can play him at outside linebacker. You can bring him in off the edge if you wanted to. And yeah, I could see him being a hybrid guy. I could see him sometimes even putting his hand on the ground if they really wanted him to. Um, he'd have to take some time to get used to and all. But I mean, he's a five-star player, all right? And I've been doing this stuff for a decade. I don't really run across five-star kids that aren't elite athletes, I mean in order to, in order to be five star, not only are you a great worker, have unbelievable ability, but your talent is off the charts. and that's and and that's where he is. I mean, his talent is just off the charts for a kid of his size and his length.
0: If we could stay at linebacker, a completely different kind of athlete, but one that nonetheless looks very promising. He showed off some speed down in San Antonio during the, uh, during the Army Bowl. or Sorry, not formerly the Army Bowl, during the All-American <laughs> Exactly, Bowl. I'm sure that's happened a bunch in the past week or so. Um, but with him down there, I mean, what does he bring? Because it's obviously a much different skill set than Brandon Smith.
2: Well, and, and who was that? Lance Dixon. Yeah, Lance Dixon is a kid that I saw at the opening. Um, you know, for me, he's just more of a downhill kid, runs well. Uh, I I found him to be a real instinctual player when I saw him and he's a kid that I think because he's not as close to Penn state's campus like Brandon Smith, I don't think people realize just how good of a player he is. Um, I think he has a chance to come in and contribute really quickly to be honest. Yeah. I like him a lot.
0: Another guy who folks are are looking toward here as a potential early contributor, coming off of the JUCO circuit, uh, Anthony Wiggin, You know, a guy who's very well put together. There's room there for for additional weight with his athleticism, um, and, and they've got a tackle spot open right now. Uh, Rasheed Walker is going to get a long look there. Others will be involved. Um, but but in your opinion, are they adding kind of a a potential plug and play talent in Anthony Wiggin?
2: Uh, it better be. I mean, you don't take Juco because you want them to sit on the bench. Um, You know, so if you're bringing in Anthony Wigan, and especially losing some guys on the offensive line that maybe you didn't think you were going to lose. Yeah. You're bringing them in to play right away. Um, Same with Brisker, the safety. You don't bring in a Juco kid because you're thinking, well, let me sit him for a year or two. You need help. Now you identify a hole. You identify that. You can get better at that position by them starting, and so yeah, I think the plan is for you know Wigan's going to get every chance he can to prove that he's ready to go.
0: And then Penn State had had you know arguably the breakout player of the year at tight end, um, uh, certainly among freshmen with Pat Fryermuth, what he did in the Big Ten conference schedule. Zach Coons, uh, you know, waiting in the wings, building him up physically behind the scenes. Then they bring in Brenton Strange out of West Virginia. Um, you know, highly rated tight end um, 247 rankings and a guy that I think a lot of people are intrigued by, but may not know a lot about. And he's a little bit different than Pat Friermuth, right? He, he's got more to build on. Uh, whereas Friermuth came in at 19, a little more advanced and, and was a guy ready to go out there. Do you see Strange as someone who kind of goes the route of going behind the scenes or, or could he get on the field early?
2: Well, I mean, again, it always comes down to development and need, but I think with him um, you're right about farm with, he, he was pretty polished when he, when he arrived at Penn state, big, strong kid um, who I, you know, is, I thought he was a really good player. He's doing even better than I thought he would. Um, but strange is more of a kid spend some time in the weight room. He's got to get his weight and size up. Uh, he's got to get, he's got to be a better blocker if they're going to use him in line Uh Good pass catcher needs to tighten up his route. So there's a lot more that has to go on with him in terms of his development than it is just, uh, you know, when came to came to campus. It's different. It's raw. But I think it's an absolutely outstanding job that Penn State got him because at one time I could have – you would have thought that Strange was either going to Ohio State or Notre Dame. So for Penn State to swoop in and get him was absolutely a marvelous job by the coaching staff.
0: And Nittany Lions got strange on October 1st, shortly after his official visit. Uh, three defensive backs are on campus early, uh, two out of Connecticut. I know you're familiar with Marquise Wilson and Tyler Rudolph, and then Keaton Ellis here on home turf. He's a guy that throughout this cycle, I've been telling whoever will listen, uh, if you put him, put him somewhere else away from Penn state, people will be going a lot, a lot more excitement about Penn state signing him. (laughs) I think people just assume he's here. He's in the backyard. His dad was part of the program. He's a guy that I think a lot of people are going to be blown away by, by what he might be able to accomplish early. I think.
2: Well, then he needed to read more of the message boards and everything for those people. (laughs) You're right. Um, Because, you know, I had that conversation with Sean Fitz and Barton Simmons, who does our rankings, you know, has the final say on it all. And that's exactly right. If you put this kid in Florida or North Jersey or California, he's going to have 30 plus offers. You're going to be making official visits all over the place. And Penn State fans are going to be like, if we can get this kid, that would be amazing. But he's in their backyard. So it, you know, it's not in the front of their mind when it comes to thinking about it, but yeah, I think he's, I think he's unbelievably talented. And when you look at his ranking, um, I think it's reflective of what we think of him. I think he's long athletic, can flip his hips and run well, just so many good things that he does that gets overlooked. And then you look at the other two and Marquise Wilson, um, if, if. Memory serves right. He did not play this past fall after moving from Avon Old Farms uh, back to another school in, in northern Connecticut. And for the life of me, I cannot remember the name of the school, but it's the same school, I believe, that Penn State landed a DB out of a few years prior. But he didn't play um, because of a uh, eligibility thing with coming from a prep to a public school. And then I did see Tyler Rudolph play and he's a good I've seen him in camps I've seen him play downhill kid physical runs well breaks on the ball well good instincts um, and he's a guy that can play either of the safety positions do you know do a couple different things with him yeah they're they're all really good players um, which you better be strong on the back end. And I think Penn State is. I think that's why you see the concentration in this class. You know, to finish up this class the right way, they they got to get some guys on the defensive side of the ball at the line of scrimmage. And I think that's why the focus is there because of just how well they did at linebacker and in the secondary in this class.
0: And this is the last one about these early enrollees, and we'll keep it at the line of scrimmage. Adiza Isaac uh, committing to the program, I believe it was two days before uh, signing period, uh, the same week of the early signing period, kind of all blended together. And huge late addition, a guy who took his uh, process you know, pretty deep. Uh, he's on campus now just a few weeks later. Um, and, and, I mean, the numbers were super impressive uh, as a senior coming out of Brooklyn. What is Penn State getting in this kid? And, and is he too raw to impact things? I think people are viewing him in, in kind of the same light as Jason Away. Is he a little ahead of where Jason was last year? Curious to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, he's he's ahead, and I think he's more athletic. Um, I, I think he's more raw, I, I, you know, and that's not a shot at Jason. So don't, man, nobody needs to go crazy that it was a shot at Jason. It's just that that's how much we think of adisa but you know, don't get caught up in the stats because if you're a kid like him, you better dominate and have unbelievable hmm. stats and you can go across the country. And, and that's what really good defensive ends do. So really? yeah, he's doing what he's supposed to do. If you're going to Penn state as a defensive end and you're ranked in the top hundred, you better have stats like that, especially playing in New York city, because you maybe saw one offensive lineman all year. who's going to play division one football. So you better dominate. Um, but he's really quick. He's explosive changes directions. Well, and he's really long. I always compare him to Sh- Sharif Miller, um, mm. same body type, same type size, same. Hey, I used to love basketball and now I'm a football kid kind of deal. Uh, Same deal with, um, I'm sure everybody knows Sharif came from a tough background. Adisa's upbringing, I know Steve Wolfong did a piece about, you know, some special needs siblings that he has and everything that his mom goes through. And so really easy kid to root for and you want him to have success. But if you want to think of what Adisa is now compared to what he can be, just look at Sharif Miller.
0: Sharif Miller blossomed into an all Big Ten performer, During his time on campus, he was one of the five Penn State players opting to forego their final collegiate season of eligibility. Um, But looking ahead here, Brian, in terms of the Penn State staff, someone who's generated a ton of buzz really since the day he arrived last January is Jaywan Sider, obviously a guy who who was highly regarded at West Virginia, uh, a season with the Florida Gators. And and now Penn State, immediate impact. You look at Noah Kane, the long-term role. He played in that recruitment. Uh, and, of course, John Dunmore, wide receiver from the South Florida region, um, very strongly considered Miami towards the end, it seemed. Um, he says it was Penn State all the way, and he says Jay Wan Sider was the big reason why. What does Coach Sider do that resonates so well on the recruiting trail, and, and how big of an addition has this been for the Nittany Lions from your vantage point?
2: Yeah, he's, you know, I, I I saw something on, on... – the Penn state board on, on the premium site, on the story I posted, you know, like, Oh, I love started. He's got connections to everybody. And he does. And he does. And that's what makes him good. But that's his job. His job. He, he was brought to Penn state because he's a really good recruiter who has connections everywhere. That's what good recruiters do. That's what good coaches do. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a great thing for Penn state to get him. But that's why James Franklin hired. This isn't a surprise. It's not a surprise that that Cider knows everybody. That what you know. His, his job was to get Penn State more involved in Florida. That happened. You know, it comes up with Chris Tyree, and he knows Chris Tyree's trainer. Yeah, because because Snyder's really well connected that that's his value, you know, and then on the field as a coach, yeah, as a running backs coach, Miles Sanders going to the NFL. He's a kid that I liked coming out of high school and we'll see what the development of Ricky Slade. And, you know, we talked about the running backs earlier, you know, who were coming in with Ford and Noah Kane. Well, now it's his job to make sure they know how to pick up the blitzes and, and that they're doing the right things. But yeah, this is what, this is what James Franklin hired.
0: Cider for? Yep, the first time he mentioned cider uh, in a media interaction. He said he expected it to open doors that weren't open before for Penn State, exactly what you're seeing. Uh, Brian Doan's been on with us for almost 40 minutes. I gotta let him get back to his other things. You can catch Brian's work on Lions 24-7 right now and of course across the 24-7 spectrum, but I can tell you Penn State related, he's got stuff up recently on Devon Ellis. He's got stuff up on 2020 five-star running back Chris Tyree. Joseph Darkwa, the intriguing defensive lineman from Europe, all that and more. Brian's always pumping out great content, much of it Penn State related. Brian, thank you so much for giving us the time and uh, good luck. Contact period going and look forward to your coverage here in the next few weeks.
2: Hey, look, I appreciate it. And for everybody out there, just realize this. Sean Fitz is not sick. He lost his voice yelling about Queens Park Rangers beating Leeds in the <laughs> FA Cup earlier this week.
0: There it is. Secret's out. Thank you, Brian. Thanks. Well, we are now over an hour on this edition of the Lions 24-7 podcast. We did owe you some time. We had a lot to catch up on. I hope we were able to accomplish much of that for our listeners. I hope you all had a great start to your 2019 uh, obviously been an eventful start to 2019 for Penn State as we've gone over some of the roster moves, early departures, early enrollments. And of course, we'll have all of your analysis as roster changes continue. It's that portion of the offseason where you can expect some surprises, uh, some maybe some speculated things that actually do happen. Um, so keep your attention on lines 24-7. You can find us on Facebook and find us on Twitter as well. Uh, for sean fitz mark brennan and our lions 24 7 community thanks again for listening hope to have sean back in the saddle next episode for now wishing you all a great weekend and thank you so much for supporting our podcast